You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It is a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me as always in Southampton, England, is our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, we're running it back again, and for some reason you have picked the 2009 World Championship final between Kevin Martin and David Murdoch, and I know exactly why you picked this game. We'll get into why I'm, I don't necessarily think that this game is deserving of an entire run it back. But uh, yeah, you've picked uh, this game. Well, it's probably the most famous strategic decision or infamous st- strategic decision in the history of curling. So we, I think we have to talk that through. And uh, so it's the game where Kevin Martin threw away his second to last shot and proceeded to lose. Like Alexander Hamilton, Kevin Martin threw away his shot and it ended exactly like it ended for Alexander Hamilton. Oh, (laughs) I think so. The other thing is when we talked about the 97 final, that's kind of Kevin Martin kind of on the ascendancy. This is peak Kevin Martin, right? So this is his probably his best team, right? With Ben Hebert, Mark Kennedy, John Morris. They go on to win the gold medal at the Olympics in 2010. I'd say they're really the first pro team, like basically every kind of elite team now plays like them, looks like them, has the fitness that they do, has the same sweeping technique. So in a certain sense, they're a little ahead of their time in 2009. But the one knock on Kevin Martin has always been that he comes up short in international competition, right? This goes back to 1991. So 18 years before this, his first world championship where he loses to Scotland uh, in another infamous game where he breaks out the corn to try to, to try to kind of dirty up the ice. So that's, that's what the Scots have always accused Kevin Martin of doing in that game. And, um, you know, from that point in time, he's only won one world championship, which was in 2008 with this team. Uh, so there's always been a question about his international championship performance. And in a certain sense, this is the quintessential throw it away, literally in the final kind of Kevin Martin international game. And because they are facing David Murdoch and Scotland in the final, we decided to bring in an actual Scotsman to help us discuss this game. Do you want to introduce our guest, Jonathan? Yes, we brought in Kara Alexander, uh, who sometimes deigns to play with me. Um, so he's going to give us the Scottish perspective because I think, I think for Canada, it's kind of seen as, as kind of this national embarrassment. (laughs) But for Scotland, how is this? How is this championship remembered in Scottish curling circles, Kerr? Well, I think it's 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 good that you've asked me to join as a curler with no repute to comment on this final. I feel I've got a lot to share. But um, how it's considered in Scotland, like for me, it's a huge fight. It's a huge game. It's really important. Um, and I think one thing I remember in particular was how excited my dad was when when Scotland won in two thousand nine. So, so yeah, I think it's probably regarded much more highly by, by us than it is maybe by anyone else on the planet. 
Was it? Did you actually watch it live, or I couldn't? I saw. If what was funny is I'd I'd watched it through the week, and then on that on the day of the final, I was traveling to go on holiday, so I was in another country and unable to watch it. So I'd gone through all this excitement of the week, and then had no idea of what was happening until my dad was texting me um, while I was on holiday. And it wasn't seen as a case of of Scotland winning or of of Canada choking it away. <laughs> I think um, it depends who you ask, um, but I would say most most um, Scottish folk would say it was um, our triumph rather than a victory we inherited. All right, what did you think of it, Ryan? Did did you know about this? Because you weren't you weren't quite curling yet, were you? Nope, had no clue. So I went to Canada the week after the championship to play in the Pacific International Cup representing the great state of Texas. And this this was the talk of the tournament. And the Canadians there were universally like angry. They were angry that Kevin Martin threw the shot away. It was kind of like it's all anyone wanted to talk about is how could he have done something so stupid. So it was kind of certainly infamous, seen as a choke job. And I think probably probably losing to Scotland, which is basically Canada's rival in international curling is kind of probably even worse, I think. So it's kind of a dark day of curling infamy in, Can- in Canadian curling circles. So do we want to go back to 2009 and see where everyone was and what was going on at the time? Jonathan, where were, what, well, you just told us what you were doing in 2009. You were living in Oklahoma. Uh, you, had, you were about to travel to the Pacific International Cup. Is that the infamous trip to the pick that you have all of the stories about that we can't repeat? Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> the only the only thing I can repeat is that an Aussie tried to pick a fight with me. Because we were we were playing for Texas. So I was playing with the Dallas Fort Worth Curling Club. And this Aussie this Aussie thought I was a Texan. <laughs> I kept trying to pick like he actually wanted to have a, a fist fight downstairs with me because I was Texan. <laughs> so that, that was kind of that's the one story I I'll, I will repeat. And I was like, dude. I'm actually from Canada. I'm not, I'm super mellow, but he kept like insulting Texas. And I was like, yeah, yes, <laughs> I agree probably with true. You. Yes, I agree with everything <laughs> that you're saying. Basically, so I didn't get very far. Um, and what else was going on? I, I, and I was basically at that point trying to get the Oklahoma curling club going. So we were, we were less than a year away from going with it. And I, I just kind of worked out a deal with the, uh, the rink in Edmond, Oklahoma to, to do a couple of demonstrations that spring. So close to, close to when you got into the game then. Yep. Very close. Kerr, where, Kerr, what were you doing in 2009? What was going on in your life? Well, um, I'd been, I'd moved down from Scotland. I'd been down for a few years by, by that point. And in 2009 in February, I'd played in my first um, English playdowns because between uh, the 2006 and 2009 with uh, Scotland uh, winning, my, my, my passion for curling had been reignited. So, um, yeah, that's what I was doing in 2009. Also, um, I was made redundant in 2009. So um, I, at, during at this point of the year when the final was played, I was still searching for employment. But that didn't stop me going on holiday um, <laughs> and, and spending some of the severance pay that I'd, I'd got. But, um, yeah, 2009 was like a kind of weird um, transition year for me, like, because I remember when I first moved down um, from Scotland, I said I would probably last like a couple of years and then go back home. Like I honestly didn't think I'd even be uh, down in England in, to watch the uh, the Olympics arrive. But um, obviously, I am still here, so that didn't work out how I how I intended. 
but yeah, it was a it was a big year because like um, when I started curling a bit more again and um, found another job and got back on the the horse as it were. So yeah, it was a bit of a mad one. So pretty memorable for for multiple reasons. Yeah, at this point in early two thousand nine, I was about a year and a half out of college, and I was still working for. Uh, the company that was really my first real job out of college. And I was single, so I was spending a lot of time on I-40 between Oklahoma City and Blacksburg, Virginia to go to Virginia Tech football games. Uh, Like Jonathan said, I'm still a year away from starting curling. And uh, during the 2008 into 2009 season, I saw, while living in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, I saw Virginia Tech play in Lincoln, Nebraska, Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, Tallahassee, Florida, Blacksburg, Virginia, and Miami, Florida. Wow. And and you did you go see all their home games too or just some of them? Uh only a couple of home games. But you must have seen most of the season then, right? Cuz that's four road games. Yeah, I saw a good chunk of the season. <laughs> right, that's impressive. It's dedication. <laughs> most of that driving, the only one I flew to was Boston. That's the only one I flew to. I drew I drove from Oklahoma City to Miami. How long is that? That is a about a 24-hour drive. And like 12 of that's Florida. Yeah, no, you get to, <laughs> yeah. So you're going from Oklahoma City to Miami driving. You get to Florida and you think, yeah, I'm in Florida. I'm almost there. No, you have reached the halfway point of your journey at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that Miami trip, I drove down. Virginia Tech played um, Cincinnati in the Orange Bowl on like January 2nd. And then I stayed in Florida on a friend's couch for the week and then went back to Miami for the Oklahoma-Florida National Championship game. (laughs) Fortunately, this was a job that didn't pay a whole lot and really didn't have any actual responsibilities. So they were cool with me just like doing stuff throughout the week while bumming on some dude's couch to save money in order to go to two football games in Florida. Well, it's a good way to live. It was. It was a good week, man. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> that that trip also has a lot of stories that I can't repeat on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them involving getting kicked out of bars, plural, in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> well, when in Miami. That's right. <laughs> um, elsewhere in the world... Um, Pretty historical moment earlier, like a couple months before this world championship, is Barack Obama was inaugurated as uh, as the president of the United States. So pretty historic moment in the history of the world here in 2009. Um, elsewhere in the sports world, uh, Pittsburgh beat Arizona in a pretty thrilling Super Bowl. Uh, Oklahoma lost to Florida in that college football championship game that I was at. And later in 2009, uh, Jonathan, this was the year of that crazy Grey Cup final where your Alouettes beat Saskatchewan uh, at the buzzer uh, to win the Grey Cup. Yeah, that's the last time they've won, I think. I think so. Yeah. The Alouettes kind of suck. I but mean, how didn't... hard is it to win a championship in an eight-team league? Um, I don't know. Ask Winnipeg. It just they just ended a thirty-year drought. Some crazy like that. Um, uh, two thousand nine was to me was pretty much peak Kobe, and he and the Lakers would beat the Magic in the NBA Finals. Uh, Sidney Crosby got his first Stanley Cup as the Penguins beat 
the Red Wings in the Stanley Cup final. Jonathan, do you have anything else to add about 2009? Uh, this is, I did not get to see this live. It's a, I got, there's a weird dead zone in my curling viewing history, which was basically when I was living in Oklahoma until stuff started getting on YouTube more frequently, probably two, three years later. The, the, whatever the year Holman wins the Scotties, that was the, the next time I was able to watch stuff live that wasn't, or kind of quickly afterwards, that wasn't, um, that wasn't Olympics. So I, didn't, I actually didn't get to see this final live either. All right, Jonathan, take us to this game. All right, so... I'm gonna. I've been told by Ryan and a few commentators on Twitter to cut down the the replay, so I'm gonna make it really short for the first nine ends. Uh, uh, <laughs> Do you like the replay? Yeah, it's, I'm a fan. Oh, <laughs> we, we need a Twitter <laughs> poll to break this. <laughs> Maybe it's just you and me, Jonathan. Kerr, you don't have to edit it. <laughs> that's that's fair enough. That's fair enough, right? <laughs> All right, so. Just a couple of things off the top. One, I think that basically Canada outcurls Scotland from ends two through eight, but Scotland outcurls Canada the first end. They kind of catch Canada napping early, and then they kind of come on strong late. That's that's the big t- kind of takeaway from the first nine ends. So the first ends very wide open. And it's basically a skips deuce. Murdoch makes a really nice hit and roll behind a corner guard, behind the center guard on his first shot. Martin tries to draw around and he gets partly buried. And then Murdoch comes around and taps Martin back to score two. So it's a it's basically a skips deuce that Murdoch generates, not quite out of nowhere, but pretty pretty much on his own. So Scotland starts off up to nothing. In the second end, Canada tied the game on like a hack weight peel i'd call it basically chipping out the scottish stone that's half buried uh and and kind of scoring two in the third end probably the best shot of the game is by peter smith who's the scottish second who ends up removing four canadian stones basically so essentially a quad so two guards and two stones in the ring but canada still managed to force scotland so now it's three to two for scotland in the fourth end, I think it's, if you actually want to go back and watch another end from this game, I thought this was a really great example of stone placement by Martin. He's, he kind of really kind of puts the stones in an interesting way, sets up a lot of great angles, and he generates a two out of it, but it could have easily been a four. Um, the other thing to note about the fourth end is John Schuster makes a brief cameo. Um, the link we're going to put up is the WCF feed, so in between each, each end, they put a picture up of a different curling team. And so team USA with John Schuster and, and John Benton kind of makes a, a brief appearance during the fourth end break. Yeah. They had just won the U S championship and that was the U S championship back when it also served as the Olympic trials for the next year's Olympics. So Schuster had won in, I guess, February of 2009 and knew then that he would be representing the U S a year later in Vancouver. Yep. So that's, that's the Olympic team. Yeah. For 2010, but they're also at that world's. So Canada's lead leads now four, three after this deuce, the fifth ends very boring. It's basically up and down the first rock sails in top four and it's hit, 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 hit. Scotland ends up blanking. So literally nothing happens that end. Um, sixth end Canada ends up lying three at the end of the end and Scotland has hammer. So Murdoch's forced to draw down to the button for one and he makes it like a really nice pressure draw in the seventh end. 
Canada's really well set up. And then John Morris makes a pretty bad miss. He basically, it's a run back, but it's a pretty easy three foot run back. And he, he basically overthrows it a bit and flashes on the takeout attempt. And this lets Scotland get out of trouble. And had John kind of made that Canada sitting four very well protected. Instead, uh, Scotland's able to get a double and force Martin to draw for one. So it's now five to four for Canada. In the eighth end, Martin freezes on the button with his last shot and leaves Murdoch basically nothing. Murdoch tries to drop in. He's basically a foot heavy. Um, so it gives up a steal to Canada. So now Canada leaves six to four. Yeah, that freeze uh, that freeze really showcased the sweeping of of this team. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna talk about the sweeping a bit. Like it's 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 they're definitely a step ahead on the sweeping at this point. Mark Kennedy and and Ben Hebert, right? They're they're basically what modern what I call modern sweeping right now is ten years ahead of the curve. Um, so Canada's leading six four. In the ninth end, Morris kind of makes another key, crucial miss. He stuffs a takeout attempt. And then Martin's left with a pretty tricky double that he misses, only getting one, which lets Murdoch have an easy draw for two. So they're tied. So the game's tied heading into the 10th end. And Martin says to Morris, that's fine. Tied up with Hammer is a good place to be, which, you know, actually, it's actually true. T- tied up with Hammer is about 80% win expectancy for just kind of checking the stats before the game. So... Normally, and especially with someone like Kevin Martin throwing the last rock, you'd think you're pretty well set up for the win there. So I want to pause here and observe two things. So first, Canada's outcurled Scotland to this point, and it's basically Murdoch standing on his head to keep Scotland tied. He's made kind of several game savers, several pressure draws, but also some nice hits and rolls. John Morris made two pretty uncharacteristic misses, shots that are pretty easy for him in seven and nine. And if he makes either of those, Canada's heading home up one with Hammer, possibly up three with Hammer, heading into the 10th end. So if you look at the stats, Canada outcurled Scotland 90% to 85%. Scotland's weak links Peter Smith at 73%. But Murdoch outcurls Kevin Martin slightly, 91% to 89%. And I think that doesn't quite do justice to what Murdoch does. He basically matched... Kevin Martin in his prime, shot for shot in a world championship final, made several saves, and really his only miss was the draw attempt when he was heavy. This is where stats can kind of lie a bit. Like basically being back back button mm-hmm. on like a draw attempt gets you a zero if you're if the other guy's biting biting the pin. <laughs> so um so basically that took him from like uh, 96% down to 91%. That one miss there. And I, I didn't see any other clean miss the rest of the game. There's a couple of like half shots, but aside from that, he was basically perfect. So, you know, although this is remembered as a game where Kevin Martin threw it away, um, there's a case to be made also that Dave Murdoch really did uh, come to play that game and, and shot really well too. So what are your guys' impressions of the game? Well, I think I said before, like it, you know, that fifth end is incredibly boring. And I think the rest of the game's kind of like, I would describe it as formulaic. So there's nothing particularly interesting happening. There's a few half shots. There's a few um, like good shots that were made. Um, and I think I think your assessment that um, Scotland, like really it was only the first end and then towards the end of the game, they came back into it. But what's interesting, one impression or something that I'm taking from it is that when Johnny Moe misses his, is his first or his second, or his second shot, um, and Benny Benny's reaction was pretty <laughs> pretty interesting, um, but I don't like 
hearing you say about like after the like the the eighth end onwards, I don't know if that's an indicator of uh, when things start to go a bit a bit wobbly for for Canada. Because what was weird, and I didn't really pick this up when I watched the game before, but only when I rewatched it um, this week, is Canada seemed super stressed throughout, and Scotland seemed so relaxed um, throughout. That was kind of the biggest thing that I I took from it, and I had never really picked up on that before. Yeah, Ben's misreaction. There's one of the shots. I think it's the first one on the run back where Ben basically stops at the hog lines, lets the stone run another 30 feet, turns around, and you can tell that he's eye rolling at John Morris. Like, <laughs> like the miss is pretty bad. He's he's a good, you know, for John Morris, he's a half rock wide. It's a it's a pretty bad miss uh, for a guy who's like a 90% career shooter. Um, but Ben's reaction is just terrible. <laughs> also, like his body language there is really bad too. So. Uh, perhaps they were just kind of getting on each other a little bit there. Like I think you're right, Kerr. So Kerr, how important was this for Scotland as, it, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things in sport in Scotland? Because I think that's, this is a period of time where uh, I know that the Scottish national team was particularly bad at this point in history. And like you had, you know the teams. The, the teams from the Scottish Premier League were just no match for the other teams in the UEFA Champions League at this point in history. It was a pretty low time for Scottish sport in general, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, like it'd been it uh, it'd been a long time since Scotland had qualified for a, an international tournament, and yeah, it was just generally quite dire, um, really. So, like, I think for people involved in curling, it was a big deal, and I think the the media kind of tried to make a bit more of it. But the, the, the other side of it is, I think often people outside of Scotland overestimate how popular curling is in Scotland outside of its own little kind of bubble. Um, it would grab headlines for a day or two and then nobody would really talk about it um, again. And that's even true for winning the silver medal. Like, I don't, it doesn't really get the, get the highlight that it, would, that it would normally. Like if it was the Summer Olympics and somebody had won a silver, I think it would probably have a bit more permanence. So yeah, curling just doesn't seem to have have much of it but yeah as a scottish sports fan um it was it was huge um for me anyway yeah even like you know six nations rugby scotland was oh, getting God, yeah. you know like one win a year against italy who's terrible yeah. and then other than that just getting absolutely crushed by all of its traditional rivals um so yeah this is a really really like like this is a real deep valley in scottish sports history and then you have mm-hmm. this team that that beats one of the greatest curlers in the history of the sport. Yeah, it's, it's like so exciting um, to to see that happen because it's like I mean I'm sure like smaller nations have this um, a lot of times. It's like I think I can't remember if it was that year, a couple of years before Scotland beat France um, in France at football. Um, like I think we might have had one or two good results in the rugby in like previous years leading up to that, but it was just that like we would concentrate on one victory against somebody good, but then. Um, like the Faroe Isles would beat us or we would get like Italy would run us close in the rugby or something like that. So it was nice to actually be on top. And it's not as if like Scotland hadn't had a good week up to that point in this competition. Like it had been a pretty incredible week altogether. It's not as if they, they had lucked their way into into that position. Yeah, and that's a good point. I want to get to I want to get to that a little bit here, Jonathan. So these these two teams played each other the last game of the round robin in Murdoch won. And then they played each other in the one-two game, and Murdoch won. So that means that the last three, his last three games of this tournament, 
uh, Murdoch went win, win, win over Kevin Martin in all three games. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure at the end of this game, someone probably made a comment along the lines of, of, well, of well, you know, the better team lost. Well, better team lost three in a row to David Murdoch. Yeah, I mean, I think this is still a period for, I, I'd call it Canadian arrogance, right? I, probably up until the last five years, um, Canadians would basically expect their teams to win world championships. And actually, their record's pretty good. They probably win about half the time, right? Up until pretty recently, especially on the men's side. So the perception is always going to be that Canada should have won. And this was also, this was probably also like the best men's team the Canada had fielded since perhaps the, in terms of like quality of the players, and uh, since perhaps the, the Russ Howard team, which had Glenn Howard, uh, Wayne Madaw, and Pete Corner back in the, in the mid nineties, like as, you know, super strong, deep team should basically was destined to win. Right. And won the championship the year before and would win the Olympics the next year without really breaking a sweat. So the perception was they probably should have won, but the fact is this week they were not the better team. And actually that comment you just made has kind of changed my mind about this game because coming in, we were talking about you and I were talking about whether or not we should even do an episode about this game. And my argument against it was this game is memorable, but not important because afterwards, you know, Murdoch isn't suddenly catapulted into stardom, even though it's his second world championship. He would never appear in another world final. Um, and while these will be the last rocks that Kevin Martin would throw at a Worlds, he would be an Olympic champion less than 12 months later. So there's not some big shift as a result of this game. However, it's memorable because one of the greatest players in the history of the sport had a moment of insanity. And if someone who considers themselves the smartest person in the room has something backfire on them in sp- as spectacularly as this, we as humans are programmed to take extreme pleasure in that, especially if it's on live television and laugh at it long and hard, even 12 years after the fact. I mean, this is basically that fake punt that the Colts ran against the Patriots on Monday Night Football, but in curling form. But what you just said kind of changes my mind on the fact that it's not important. I think the importance is this chips away at Canadian arrogance because like that's the... I mean, what Martin does with his first shot in 10 is ultimate in Canadian arrogance is I've got it all figured out. I'm going to make you figure it out and then I'm going to beat you anyway. And didn't happen. No. I mean, the one thing I'll say is that Murdoch, I think you're underselling him a little bit, right? So I, I just, when we were looking at the show notes, I kind of went and pulled up his record, right? So from 2005 to 2013, so in that eight year stretch, as a skip at the Worlds, Murdoch finished second in 2005, first in 2006, second in 2008, first in 2009. So over that, you know, over that five-year stretch, he he get he's in the final four out of the five years. Third in 2010, there he's an alternate. He's on the Brewster team as an alternate. Uh, 2013, he's uh, back at skip and finishes third, and then 2015. And it finishes 11th, and then 26, 17, he finishes sixth. So his later career, there's a bit of a decline. He also does, you know, I think in your mind, you're saying, oh, he didn't really have that great Olympic run because I think everyone thinks about the final. But honestly, 
I would say his peak moment was the Olympic semifinal where he made an absolute pistol of a raised double against Nicodine in 2014. He on did. His last he shot. did. That was, that was a crazy shot. I do remember that. But like if that final against Jacobs hadn't been such a dog, I think we would yeah. remember it a little bit differently. I mean, I know, yeah, if the final against, like if Jacobs had beat him in the last end, I think we remember that shot against Nadine as one of the greatest shots in Olympic history, but. Because he he basically, he has an open draw to the forefoot. And I think everyone in the place assumes he's just going to draw and for, go to an extra. And I, I remember it really well because he, he basically puts the broom down to draw, turns around to look at it, and then he cracks a smile and he calls a timeout and they debate it. And he just opts to play the run double, which is really a gutsy call. I love it. Like I, I absolutely love that. Um, that made me so happy because I was like, I could almost see a little bit of me. It's like, yeah, play the silly shot. Even if you lose, go down and... and in uh, glory, in glory, instead of just sort of playing playing it safe. <laughs> All right, and it's a pretty big stakes there, right? It's an Olympic semifinal, so. Uh, All right, yeah. let's do it, Jonathan. Let's go to the tenth. All right, <laughs> so I want to walk through it shot by shot. Right, so Scotland puts up a center guard. I'm just going to I'm just going to sit here in the background and laugh as you goes through shot by shot. It's <laughs> so good. It's so All good. Right. So Scotland puts up a center guard. Ben flashes on the tick attempt, and that's that's actually until Kevin Martin's last, the only miss that Canada has this end. So they miss on the first one. They miss on Kevin's last, where I actually don't think there's a shot there, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, so Hebert flashed on the tick attempt. So then Scotland then throws up a perfect long center guard. So they've got the staggered double center guard that makes the double peel tricky. And this becomes really important later in the end, right? So then Hebert, Kevin opts to have Hebert go top full for fully buried. So my first note here is Kevin spends the entire end switching back and forth between wanting to open it up and give himself button access with his last shot or going for it and basically trying to pile some stones in there and force a Scotland miss so he doesn't have to throw his last shot, right? And I think that that indecisiveness is what sinks him in the end as he, he basically switches back and forth. And, you know, one of the first points of curling strategy is stick to a plan and follow it rather than keep changing your plan every single every single shot. That means you don't really know what you're doing here. Okay, so third third set of shots. So then Smith freezes on Hebert's stone, a little bump freeze. Canada's still shot. And here I think is where the first kind of decision of the end you could question uh, pops up. So the, so the stone is open and it's basically Martin opts to hit the Scottish stone in the rings over having Kennedy peel the guards, right? And so my rant here is that you know, this is the thing that I'm always emphasizing to juniors is especially early in the end, if you have hammer and there's double guards up and all you want to do is have button access, you really need to rip the guards and rip them early. And, you know, uh, uh, Mary from Two Girls in a Game, she's kind of famous for saying, whoever regretted ripping a guard? And the answer is nobody. And I think, honestly, you have Mark Kennedy, who's quite possibly the best double peeler ever. The fact that Martin never calls him to make a double peel in either of his shots is just baffling that Martin should have ripped the guard. So that, that's, I think, the crucial mistake here is, is this shot, that if Martin had just called Mark to peel the guards, that really makes Scotland's life tough. Like they basically have to either make a play in the rings and leave only one guard up and then Canada's blasting, 
or they have to put the center guard back up and then Canada's just exchanging peels until the last. And that then gives Martin a pretty easy shot with his last. So are you saying that he should attempt a double peel or are you saying at the very, just go for the single peel and if you get the second one, then that's just icing on the cake? Yeah, you just play a slash double peel. And if you, but you, but you play in such a way that you're definitely getting the first one. If you catch the back one, that's bonus. And then you're just, you're, you're basically, then you force Scotland to pick their poison. They can put a center guard back up and then you're just playing. You, you basically have three chances with John Morris and Mark Kennedy to hit a double peel. I like those chances. I think they're going to hit one in one of their three attempts or Scotland opts to come into the rings. Now there's only one guard up front and then you can basically either blast all the junk in the rings and then rip the guard later or rip the guard and then blast all the stuff in the rings. If have they peeled that guard, even if they'd only got one, the end is way less junky and then you're just blasting. And Kevin Martin's the best blast team ever. So why they didn't do that is just baffling to me. Do you think that's the arrogance? Did you think, oh, they're not expecting um, Pete Smith to make a shot or you into... To, to put pressure on them because why else would you choose to keep everything in the middle and not open it up unless you were like I don't think the opposition can can take advantage of that opportunity so in the 97 Briar final game Martin also opted to play aggressively and junkily in the last end too so I'm not sure if that's just one of his preferences is really go for it in the last end put a lot of pressure and force the other team to miss that may just have been one of his strategic preferences throughout his career but um, I'm not sure if it's arrogance or just, I think he just never decided because he, he called tick on Hebert's first and, and Ben misses. Then he decides I'm going to dump it in there. Then he keeps dumping it in there. Then he changes his mind later on in the end where it's too late. All right. So now Canada's sitting two in the rings because Mark's removed the Scottish one and Scotland's got two center guards up. Scotland attempts to freeze on Canada's stones, but it rubs on the guards and ends up sitting open. Right. So they're sitting third shot. Canada sitting one, two. And Martin again opts to ignore the guards and opts to hit the Scottish zone and sits and relies three. So in a certain sense, this seems great. You're sitting three buried behind two guards. Scotland doesn't really have much access. But I'd argue that the fact that Canada's sitting three is a problem, that even if they'd opted to peel away so that the, basically the shrapnel is what sinks Canada in the end is they leave too many rocks around. So I think that's the, the next problem here. So Canada's now sitting three buried behind two guards and Ewan McDonald draws into the pile and sits top eight for third shot. And so now Martin changes strategy and decides to double peel and Morris only gets one guard. So it still actually looks pretty good for Canada, even with the peel at this point. And so Scotland calls a timeout and they decide to tap theirs up into the pocket of the Canadian stones. So Canada's two stones end up sitting at either side of the button, but the Scottish stone ends up sitting on top of them. And then Canada sits fourth and Scotland sits fifth, if you can visualize this. So now can, they, now that Scotland's kind of in the rings, Morris peels the other guard. So note here, right? There's now no guards in front of the rings. And, and had Canada actually begun peeling the guards earlier on Kennedy's first, there's a good chance that Canada would have had an open house Right. And they wouldn't have had three stones lying around that become catchers later in the end. Right. So opting to open up the front, the worst they'd be looking at then is either a double to win the game. And I'd give Kevin Martin a double to win a world championship any day of the week. Right. Or an open hit or a draw to the forefoot. But instead, 
Now you've got a guttle of, as the Scots like to call it, of five stones of the rings. And so then Murdoch, now, now on his first shot, opts to tap up his stone lying fifth shot. And he actually doesn't get a great result. He kind of, it, it just kind of bounces in a weird way. He ends up sitting fifth, top eight. So Canada's still sitting two stones biting the button. There's a lot of junk, but the angles aren't great for Canada, for Scotland, right? So if you look at it, this is what prompts the discussion. And so I clocked it. So it's a seven minute and 10 second conversation that Canada has. <laughs> they burn both their timeouts. It makes it even better. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying? I say it makes it even better that they took so long. That it just makes it, it so takes- much sweeter. It's just like there's more setup going on, sprinkle of sugar. It's gorgeous. <laughs> and I, there's two versions of this. So there's a version with the CBC commentary. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a, there's the WCF version's better because you actually hear a clear line of what Mark Kennedy and Ben Hebert are thinking, and they really hate this, right? So Canada basically has four options. The first one is they drive their yellow stone that's sitting top eight into the Scottish stone, and it probably spills the stones at the back, but it leaves Scotland sitting shot, right? And then Scotland probably guards but then Canada might have a double on their last, right? So the reason they set that aside is Canada's sitting two. So why would you basically take out two of your own stones to let Scotland sit one, right? So that's probably why they set that aside. Other option is blast the Scottish stone sitting top four. Again, you spill both of Canada's stones and you leave Scotland shot. So again, the, the reason they say we don't want to do that is because we'll leave Scotland shot and they could guard and then we don't have much of a shot with their last one. So that's why they set aside the two kind of blast shots. What's interesting here is Morris keeps pressing for the guard. And if you actually, he's basically talking about if we guard the two Scottish stones, they don't have an easy tap up to get shot. And basically what Scotland would have is a very tricky, what I call triple slash. So they'd have to hit one sitting top 12 at an angle into the Scottish stone top eight, into the Scottish stone top four. And then if they're doing it with like backline weight, they'd have to get the weight just perfectly to freeze it in there. If they throw it with a little bit more weight, then they might not, depending on how the angles line, even if they hit it up, they might unlock the Canadian ones anyway. Personally, if it was me, I would guard it and then tell Murdoch, make that shot. And if you make it, you win. But at least I'm forcing him to, to make it on a win rather than taking away my options. Martin is adamant against that he basically keeps saying no 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 we're not guarding we're not guarding he's basically refusing to guard and so that's why martin ultimately opts to throw it away and nobody makes this call right except martin so like the mic picks up the mic picks up ben hebert saying i really hate this call mark kennedy's at the back end like i don't know he's just like i don't know i'm not going to argue it the best mic part, and this is probably, John Morris has given us many great hot mic moments over the years, but this is, I think, the best because he goes, as Martin goes down to throw it, Morris sets up holding the broom and he goes, this could either be genius or one of the dumber calls of all time. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so Martin says, basically, as he's going away, can you think of something we can do that doesn't help him? All right. So. Do we think Martin, do we think Morris is right? Is Martin a genius or is he a moron for throwing it away? It, it feels wrong for a man of my curling stature to say that Kevin Martin is a moron. But in this moment, he was a moron. All right. So what would you have done? 
So I, my, my shot selection is the first one you described. So I think it's uh, driving the um, yellow that was top eight yeah. um, into the, the pair, the, the Scottish pair, and just trying to spill everything at the back. Because my, my thought is I just want to see the button. Like and I don't care what um, Scotland does after that. I just want to know that that's, that's open and there's some room for manoeuvre. Because that's, like you said, that's what was really hurting them is there was so much crowded around. You were struggling to, to, to really, even if you do throw something huge, which is what, what ended up happening, um, you're not going to be able to move enough around and it's more risk. So I'd rather try and make an, an almighty mess with my first one and then see where I am. Um, that's that's my, my first, first thought anyway. But then if Scotland is sitting one, doesn't Murdoch just guard? And then Martin's got to play some kind of run in with his last, basically. That's why I like the guard. Is you're making you're making him make the insane shot. Yeah, and I think I think most club players play the guard, right? They're like, we're sitting we're sitting two, throw the guard, make your shot. Yeah. And I, I, the reason that that pros don't do that is your opponent probably will make the shot, and then you're you're screwed basically. But here, I think the shot that the guard would leave Murdoch is so tough. It's like, it's, I'm like, leave him that. And if he makes it, I'd rather lose the championship that way than the way they ultimately do. Well, thank you both for being so kind about saying, care, you're wrong. So thank you for that. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. I think that's what, that's what, that's what Mark Kennedy and, and Ben Hebert liked. And I think that's, that's basically how the pros play is like, you see this all the time where they'll actually opt to, they call it unlocking. They'll opt to leave the other team shot, but they want to remove their backing stones. So they can get access later. Right. So basically they do that Murdoch guards and then Martin's got to try some run in smash, but. Is there no draw? Is there, is there no room to draw and, and draw the pen basically for the win? For Martin. For Martin. If he, I don't well. think so. Cause it, cause Murdoch takes that away with a guard. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. All right. So Murdoch then plays a quiet, he's basically playing back line to hack. That's the thing is like the shot he leaves Dave isn't hard. Like it's not easy, but it's not like it's not like Dave Murdoch has to do something crazy in order to wind up sitting shot and make Kevin Martin at least throw something. Yeah, it's basically an angle hit. It's basically hit three quarters of the rock, angle it in there into the pocket. And Murdoch I it's it's well thrown. It's not hard, like you said. Murdoch gets a really nice roll where he rolls mm-hmm. top four buried wedged in and basically everything sits in the perfect spot. Yeah. Right. And Martin is left with not much. So if they guarded Murdoch doesn't have that shot. And yep. what Martin is left attempting is he's trying to run a Scottish stone into the pocket and then peel out everything, but a Canadian stone biting back button. So basically spill everything. I think I kind of watched it like a replay four times. I'm not convinced it was there. It, it may have been there, but Martin, Martin's pretty close to getting it. Like he's trying, he basically gets some of the stones moving, but there's so much junk in there that basically the Scottish stones aren't going to go very far, right? So the, the weird thing about this is Canada misses the first shot, but makes everything else perfectly. Scotland basically has a bunch of half shots but they miss everything pro side. And then Murdoch's last mm-hmm. shot rolls to the perfect spot. Right. And so that's the reason. So what do you think the lesson is here? 
nobody ever regrets peeling. <laughs> no. Yeah, nobody, nobody ever. You, yeah, the lesson here is: Have you ever regretted peeling the garlic? Well, the, the lesson is like: Use your stone, unless unless you're throwing away at the end to just take a one instead of trying to get a two. Like that's that's when throwing it away makes sense, um, because yeah. actually you might risk the the one point that you're you're looking to score. But if if you want to have an influence on the outcome of the game. Then you use your shot. <laughs> Don't just lob it into the back. Yeah, I to, to my mind the mistakes made earlier in the end. I mean, the throwing away seems bonkers, but the, the the stuff that actually seems bonkers is just not having Mark Kennedy peel the guards, and then there's way less crap. Mark Kennedy makes both the shots that he's asked of him, and he makes yeah. them very well. Mm-hmm. Like they're spot on, like yep. very 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 good shots. And look at what happened. So yeah, I think yeah, like just peeling in the beginning. And just keeping it easy for yourself, especially with, the, I mean, but the, the thing that kind of confuses me as well is they already said uh, before the end started, like being um, uh, tied up with the hammer, it's a good position to be in. And then they didn't make use of that. They, they acknowledged it before the end started. And they're like, well, you, you, you spoke that into the universe. Like, why didn't you, why didn't you actually do it? Yeah, because all you need there is like an open shot for your one. Right, and they're they're playing an end like they want to, and you've got incredible sweepers. So if you're drawing and it's a a tough draw or a real big pressure draw, and you need to cover the pin, like I'm feeling good if I've got uh, Kennedy and Hebert <laughs> sweeping my shot for for that. And he probably is still wondering how Scotland are still in it. Like I know Murdoch played like incredibly well. It basically ensured that the team were able to because the the Canada, like Scotland shouldn't really have been in it as close as it was at that point in the in the game really if you go on the, sh- the shots made shots missed and having a look at the percentages through throughout but i get like yeah maybe it's a combination of the pressure and confused by the fact that how are how are we tied up going into the last that doesn't make that doesn't really make sense because they gift them that deuce in nine yeah yeah they gift the deuce in nine i think i think the other thing is martin tended to be a, a defense first kind of curler like his basic mo was get a lead early and then just protect the lead and, you know, the one risk with that is the game's always close. And so all you really need is one crazy thing to happen in a tied game in the last end. And this last end had about eight crazy things go on. So, <laughs> and then you're, then you're, you're toast, right? So the risk of the defense first strategy, which is basically Martin's default throughout his career, is you're always going to be in these close games. And someone like Murdoch, he played well and kept Scotland in it right to the end and then pounced when he had the opportunity. All right, so should we do our rundown through our 10 things from this game? Sure. All right, so what do you think the biggest difference is between this game and a 2020 game? So, Kurt, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, so um, I think, well, I don't know if this was the mics being up or down or being different on the feed that I watched, but it seemed like there was a lot less communication than you have now. Um, there wasn't as much chat, even though the rocks were traveling down the ice. Um and maybe that's because the the change in thinking time. So they changed thinking time later than that. I can't I can't remember exactly when when they changed the timing. But I don't know if they're trying to rush a bit more. Um, and the the other thing is um, the sweeping. I mean, looking at I mean, you and Byers is a great like great sweeper, and so is you and McDonald. But when you look at them compared to like sweepers now, totally different ballgame. Yeah, you and Byers is like an open stance, which you you wouldn't see in. Uh in kind of contemporary sweeping. Um, Apart from me, I still do it. 
still do open <laughs> stance, right? But like most pros, it's closed stance all the way um, these days. Uh, and yeah, I think Mark Kennedy and and uh, Hebert, like they've really perfected the modern sweeping technique. And, you know, this is the first game of the ones we've looked at where you have two sweepers sweeping in a way that you'd see now on pro teams for sure. <laughs> all right. What about player of the game? So I know, like, so I'm, I, I preface this with, um, I'm a career second, so I'm saying Mark Kennedy. Um, I just, I, when I was watching the game and I was scribbling stuff down, I was like, he's just so good. And, like, his sweeping, shot making, like, he's the the ideal package, I would say, in a curler. Um, so him for me, even though I know that the second's, like, as it's statistically, the second's performance has the least influence on the outcome of the game, and this may be an example of it. But um, yeah, I still, I still going to go with him as the, the the player of the game. Yeah, he shot like ninety five percent in this game. Yeah. <laughs> like he's at the high high point, out shooting the leads even, right? Which so. is inc- which is incredible, I think. Yeah, I have Murdoch. I think he he basically like he shot ninety one percent. He and he, again, the only thing he missed, like outright missed, was that draw to the pin where he's like back, back basically biting back button. Uh, and he basically matched Kevin Martin shot for shot. Uh, and then he got a bit of luck on the last one. And something that I think has to be said for that, right? A lot of people take themselves out of a game early by trying to make hero shots and try to win the game in the third or fourth end. And basically Murdoch took what he could throughout the game and then kind of kept it close and then pounced in the last end. So uh, play like a very sensible kind of opportunistic kind of game i'd say i think it might be the best whole game i can remember watching of his um and he just looked so like laser focused he was really in it like that i think that was noticeable as well i'd love to watch some like of his like bigger games of back to back and compare it because he just looked like in the zone 100 percent. yeah it started very first end getting that basically skips deuce in the first end and from then on, I mean, he was just, he was locked in. So to me, it's Murdoch. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So TSN turning point. So how would curling history be different if X hadn't happened? So I think the conventional wisdom here is Martin throwing it away. So do we agree that this changed curling history? I, uh, no, no, (laughs) why not? I mean, like I said earlier, there isn't some like cataclysmic shift at this point. Um, I mean, Canada goes on to win the 2010 Olympics and the 2014 Olympics uh, on the men's side. On the women's side, they only win in 2014 and they get silver in 2010. So there isn't like just a cataclysmic shift in curling. So I don't think it drastically changes the history of the sport. I think it changes the trajectory of a couple of these players. You know, um, I think the Martin team, just because at this point, they're so much better than most of the other curlers in Canada. They probably still do still go on to win the 2010 gold in Vancouver. And then at that point, maybe you do say without hesitation that Kevin Martin is the greatest curler of all time. And then the other... The other thing that might be different is I, I don't think you see Dave Murdoch as the as the British rep at the Olympics. So do you do you agree with that, Kerr? I do. Like, well, so I've got this scenario in my 
in my head that stretches into Sochi. So I think if Murdoch doesn't win, then he doesn't have the the influence or the cachet to then end up being helicoptered into Brewster's team and then they go on to win a medal. And I think they wouldn't have won the medal because there was something in the tension of that team that that drove the performance. And that's what, why they ended up doing what they did. But I, I don't see that being the, the series of events if they don't win um, win this championship. So maybe for our listeners, like what what can you just tell us what exactly happened? Because I'm not sure how many people know the whole uh, Team GB men's 2014 drama there. So like it, well, Tom Tom Brewster basically pulled a Kevin Martin and got um, young guns ahead of him, um, who are like like absolute sweeping beasts, and sort of replicated that model, and it's kind of popular, I guess now, and um, had done really really well. Uh, Tom Brewster was it two yeah two years in a row. Um, silver medals at the Worlds um, and like that team was properly good and I had the pleasure of being absolutely thumped by them in one competition and <laughs> it was a good learning opportunity but we got absolutely annihilated like it just wasn't even anywhere close they were on a total different planet and yeah, 2011 um, and 2012 they went silver yeah. and it was a like, fantastic team and then I think what happened they, their performance tailed off a little bit and I think um uh, British curling got a little bit kind of um, concerned, or they're maybe worried about the the medal chances. So at that point, uh, Muddy uh, Murdoch was looking for a team. Um, I think he was like he was like a free agent, and mm-hmm. um, they thought, well, he's the man. He's um, getting funding and whatever. We need to find him a team to to throw with, and they put him into uh, into Brewster's team, and they played a couple of competitions. I think Brewster dropped down to third. Um, and Murdoch skipped, and then in the in the end, um, Brewster ended up as the alternate, and um, Greg Drummond was throwing third stones in the front end, staying the same with Goodfellow and, and Scott Andrews. Okay, I've got another possible nominee here. So on the coaching bench. Oh is, yeah, here uh, we go. This is good. I like this. <laughs> I like this rabbit hole a lot, actually. <laughs> is Ryan's favorite person, Derek Brown? Oh, no, come on. He is not nearly <laughs> the person in curling. I, he's like not even in the top 10 among. I wouldn't even say I dislike him. I just think that he he provides a good foil to like he makes he's the reason that there's even more conflict in the Schuster story and conflict makes good stories. So his existence makes the Schuster story a better story. But I don't think that he's necessarily like the you know, dastardly evil villain of the Schuster story. He just, he'd provide some conflict there. He basically ends up being appointed high performance director in 2011. So he comes out of, he comes out of the 2010, he's got this 2009 run. And then, uh, is Murdoch, the, Murdoch's the, the skip of the 2010 Olympics, right? Yeah. So Murdoch's the tw- skip at 2010 Olympics and they finish, um, they end up finishing fifth. And then uh, Derek Brown ends up being hired as high performance director by USA Curling, right? And and leads to a lot of changes in USA Curling over the next eight years. So interesting question. If if Murdoch doesn't win the world championship this year, does that then give Brown the platform to then go and get a job as high performance director at USA Curling? 
Because, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff here, like the brief cameo by Schuster, the the kind of Derek Brown sitting on the coaching bench. There's a lot of people that shape curling over the next decade that are kind of on screen in this final. I really liked seeing the cameo from John Schuster because when I saw it, I was like, oh, if only you knew. I was like, oh, I, it's so exciting. But um, I don't, um, I mean, I, I should think um, he probably still gets. Um, the job with the US, I would say. Um, I think he would still get it off the back of of everything. So nothing changes. This this final didn't matter at all. <laughs> uh, it definitely matters to Tom Brewster. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So Tom Brewster is probably the one who... Tom Brewster is loses. a big loser out of Kevin Martin throwing his shot away. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Which is, which is an incredible shame. <laughs> all right. So what... What do we think the shot of the game is? I had down an unlikely shot. It was Peter Smith's quad. He made a quad in the third end where he basically peels two guards and kills everything in the house. I'm so glad you picked a shot for my second, Jonathan. Thank you very much for that. Um, I actually think he was a bit lucky. Like, there was a bit of luck there to make the full, like the whole all four go. Um, but it was still always a, a lovely looking shot. And then the other one might be Murdoch's tap freeze which he makes the most memorable is the throwaway <laughs> right obviously so is that is the throwaway the shot of the game then i'd argue it's <laughs> i'd argue it's the tap that you and mcdonald makes that leads to martin deciding to throw it away all right that's a good that's a good uh argument any any other nominees car um, i really like murdoch's um hit and roll cross house uh, in the fourth um, and, yeah. I mean, it didn't really make a lot, like, it wasn't as if that the end was looking particularly ugly for them or it really changed the the outcome. But I just, I love the way um, it happened with the really long, slow roll from being out in the wing and the, the, the 12 foot all the way across and that extra little turn at the end, which took it to freeze. I just think it looked really good, um, although it didn't really have a huge, huge impact. So what do we think the most interesting strategic decision is, Ryan? What do you think? <laughs> So is there anything besides throwing it away? Uh, not peeling. Which, which terrible decision do we want to choose as our most interesting strategic decision? All right. So weird stats or factoids. You got any, Ryan? I've got a couple. One, this is, these are Kevin Martin's last shots out of Worlds. Yeah, and I, I hadn't realized that until you pointed it out. So. Me, me too. I, I honestly would have, had no idea that was the case. No, we we quick after the next year, Martin does not play in the Briar because he's the Olympic team, and after that, basically get that basically gives us the rise of Kevin Cooey because he goes to the Briar in 2010 and wins it, and then goes to Worlds. Um, and then the other note that I have is, I'm sorry, Kerb, but this is the most recent Scottish World Championship on the men's side. <laughs> on yeah, the men's side. <laughs> it's pretty depressing. So is Murdoch and Brewster, is this Scotland's golden generation of curling, at least on the men's side? Uh, yeah, I would say so. No, I think right now. Oh, well, no, good point. It's a lot like, deeper now. A lot deeper now. Yeah, the, the t- like, yeah, that's right. And I mean, was Mowat the first to win a slam? Yeah. Um, yes. And then Patterson was the second. When Murdoch was going to all these worlds, he was beating Warwick Smith in the Scottish final, like, all due respect to Warwick Smith, 
you know, it's not on par with what we're seeing now in Scottish men's curling with the depth that is there. Is Mowat better though yet? He hasn't won. He's won a Europeans and he's won, uh, he's come third at the Worlds, but he hasn't even made a, a final yet, whereas Murdoch made several, right? No, yeah, he's got he's to get to a world final at the very least, if not win it, in order to put him above Dave, that's for sure. But we're thinking he's likely to. I would say so, because like those teams are still to come of age. Like If you think of the experience that the, the guys in 2009 had under their belt, um, like the, the crop of curlers that Scotland have got now, in success terms, probably don't like um, aren't the same um, to like pure results. But when you look at the the potential, if when they come of age, like in another few years, I reckon it's it's a different story. By the time they come of age, though, it may be it may be Ross White o'clock. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the other thing is that Scottish curlings or British curlings really changed, right? In the the eight years I've been here, like when I first got here in twenty. 13, right? It was still possible to enter the Lockerbie Open as Kerr. Is, is that where you got thumped by Brewster? No, or? it was the Aberdeen City Open. I got thumped yeah. by, by Brewster. Yeah. I mean, Brewster playing with that team at the Aberdeen City Open yeah. it's unfair, now would right? be absurd, right? <laughs> it, it's 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 like the, 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 the Scottish curling tour events I play in, like you, you just don't have that caliber of team. But back then, because the funding wasn't in place, the, the top Scottish teams would just play the Scottish curling tour, right? Do you want to know the only two teams to beat us that weekend? Do you want to know who they were? Sure. Yap Van Dorp and Tom Brewster. Yeah. And it, it, if you go now if you go now to the Aberdeen <laughs> Open, which actually I got to say, not, I'm going to sound like I'm slagging it, but actually it's my, oh, it's probably great. my favorite One of my Scottish bond spiel. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I think it's good for like a club plus team, but you may occasionally find, you know, senior women's teams playing in it or teams that are quite drunk. So it's not, this is not a slam. Um, and it's a, it's a lot of fun, but you go back just eight years and a, an Olympic Olympic medalist team is playing in that level of competition. Whereas now the funding's in place that, that those teams only play, you know, order of merit point winning competitions, right? Yeah, so that's a pretty big change too, I'd say. All right, so what what is aged the best? I had Mark Kennedy, who's ninety four percent shooting. This was kind of a coming out party for him, right? That that if you look, like, basically Mark Kennedy's run through the twenty tens as an elite curler is just absolutely amazing, I'd say. And I'd say Kennedy and Hebert sweeping is aged because everybody, like I think you said that earlier, everybody sweeps like that now. It's the it's the way it's done. But yeah, get yourself a big strapping Saskatchewan lad to throw your first two and then sweep like sweep like crazy for the next six. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so what's aged the worst? Um, I would say that Johnny Moe and Kevin Martin's relationship has probably aged the worst. So is this their is this the their the best of their bromance this this final? Oh, I think no. I think it was fall it was falling apart. Like I didn't really think of it until I rewatched it, but I, I feel like it was falling apart. Um, then. Oh really? I don't know. Like, I don't know because um, I think uh, in my other things I've aged the worst. I was thinking that Johnny Moe himself because I used to love him, but now watching that game again, again, he was kind of annoying me. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if like maybe I as I'm getting older, I'm becoming more like Kevin Martin and less like Johnny Moe. And I and I don't know if I was reading into it too much, but I just felt like they they, they weren't. It just wasn't really clicking. It didn't seem like they were they were into each other. 
I think what has aged the worst is guys with a goose with acoustic guitars playing between ends. Was there a guy with playing acoustic guitar between ends? Did you not watch this game on that on the WCF feed? I would just skip three minutes ahead. <laughs> yeah, so you missed you missed, uh, you missed a dude playing playing the hits on his acoustic guitar so that the fans could clap along. He played uh, Sweet Caroline. He played <laughs> Cecilia. Uh, he played he played some some great '80s jams uh, in between ends. All right, my nominee is Ewan McDonald's Hammer. How very dare you, Jonathan? How very <laughs> dare you? Which he was still using when I played him about five years ago. So I played him, uh, and and like Kerr's experience with Tom Brewster, he made very short work of us. <laughs> but yeah, I played him uh probably in glasgow and brayhead maybe four or five years ago and he was still using a hammer he's like the last person on the planet who used the hammer for his curling delivery i'm, I'm gonna bring it back jonathan honestly like you're gonna bring it back i i agree with him see sliding out with a hammer it is the best but are you gonna bring back the rug the rug attachment yes just for you <laughs> <laughs> all right who won the week ryan Glenn Howard fans. Why? Because Kevin Martin did what he did. <laughs> Car, who do you have winning the week? British curling and their bank balance with all the extra Olympic funding they got. So, so is this is this the event that they started getting serious money from, or that's how I understand it? Like they had like so there was decent money going in already, but I think this elevated it to uh, uh, another level. And they were like the curlers were legitimately full full time from from that point. And so, yeah, I think that's a good question, right? So Murdoch's gone on to you know he went on to win a silver medal. He's now the head coach for the the team GB. Um, Derek Brown ended up going to be the coach for USA Curling. So a lot of people on the the Scottish side ended up building their careers off this win for sure. All right, last last category. So too early, too late, just right. So I've got Murdoch being just right. I think the uh, rest of the Scottish team, unfortunately, with that hammer, <laughs> looks like a bit of a throwback to the 90s. Uh, I think Martin's front end's a little bit too early in the sense that they are the future of curling, right? Great sweeping technique, fantastic shooters, both shooting in the 90s. Uh, you end up having two gold medals in Johnny Moe's future, Hebert and Kennedy and Morris all go on to win future Briars. But as as uh, Ryan noted, this was Martin's last Briar win and last international win. So Martin kind of oddly picked the future of Canadian curling and forming this team and built his team around it. So there's a case we made that even though he threw this game away, this was kind of the 2009-2010 was peak Kevin Martin. Agreed? Yeah, I'd agree yeah. 100%. Uh, any other nominees for too early, too late, or just right? Just right would be Moncton. Crowds were amazing. Uh, this final is jam packed. I mean, how many, how many times have you seen a Worlds other other than like North Bay when the women went to North Bay? How many times have you seen like a big raucous crowd at an arena as big at that as that at a Worlds since then? Pretty rarely. I think it, it, they seem to do best in kind of smaller towns and cities in Canada. Those seem to be the places where uh, those events seem to do the best for sure. Yeah. Shout out to Moncton. Moncton. All right. 
Okay, so last thoughts. <laughs> what do you think, Kerr? How significant was this for Scottish curling this game? Um, I think it was. I, I think it was. A, it was really, really important. Um, on a personal level, um, Pete Smith was in his forties. That like at the time, it gave me hope that I could still find success. I, like my career wasn't past me. It turns out that it was, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but um, no, I think it's sort of it's this weird kind of bridge because I think you're right in saying that it's the, a really retro team and they won. I don't think a team like this is ever going to win again. And because they were Scottish, it kind of gives it a whole different angle. Um, yeah, so I think it was it was it was. A, a, a great, I say a great game. It wasn't really a great game, but the outcome was 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 an, immense. And personally, it was tremendous. Like I, I thoroughly enjoyed rewatching it as well. Yeah, this is the last vestiges of old school Scottish curling from because from now on you're going to have a team that gets sent to worlds that is you know handpicked by Scottish curling and British curling as the team that's supposed to go there and perform. Well, it's still, it's still national. It's still the national Scottish champion winners to worlds until last year, right, Car? But there was a whole like the, the way that like everything was being sort of channeled because I think basically you had to live in Sterling. <laughs> like there was all, there was all yeah. sorts of other things that yes, the champions still uh, represented Scotland, but they put a lot of other things in place that kind of effectively discouraged people who weren't who didn't fit that kind of kind of description. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's kind of an interesting transitional moment and Murdoch being now the head coach, he's kind of pushing obviously for the selection and professionalization now in his kind of administrative role, right? So you can really see that shift. And in in a certain sense, what's interesting is Scottish curling is now more full-time professional curling than Canada is. But back in 2009, Canada, I mean, they they weren't really pros, but they're, they're basically they're basically able to run that team. Martin is like, it's a business and that team's fully funded through sponsorship and Canadian curling budgets. But now like the, basically the full-time paid curlers are actually the, the team GB curlers. Thank you for listening to rocks across the pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.